You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Okay, great. I'm now going to preach from the Bible. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to Mark and chapter 13. Mark and chapter 13. We've been looking at the story of Mark. Mark is based upon the life of Peter, who was one of the radical disciples of Jesus Christ. We started by saying this story began by Jesus coming on the scene, baptism, temptation, the kingdom advance. There was a breaking of this story. The story is then demonstrated, and we looked at parables, healings, calming the storm, setting folk free. We then realized this story is way bigger than we could imagine. It's the world story. Jesus goes beyond Galilee. There's bread for all the nations. Peter's confession, Jesus is Lord. Wow, just breaks it open. We also recognize it's a costly story. We are to serve others. We are to welcome all, and we are to avoid sin. Now what we're looking at is the surprising story. Every story has a twist and a turn. If you've been here before, you know that I've often said there are more than 40 times in 16 chapters where they use the word immediately, immediately, immediately. It is a very fast-paced book, apart from today. Today is the chapter that Peter, through Mark, slows everything right down. This is the longest spoken words of Jesus in the whole book. So in the midst of all this action, what is Jesus going to say? I'm going to read the whole chapter. It would take a few moments, but it's the word of God, and I believe it will speak to us. Mark chapter 13 and verse 1. In my Bible, it says, signs of the end of the age. As he, this is Jesus, was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, What massive stones. What magnificent buildings. Do you see all these buildings? Replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting opposite on the Mount of Olives, Peter, James, John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, And kingdom against kingdom. But there there will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations... Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. 
brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning. When God created the world until now, never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give light, the stars will fall from the sky, and heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is coming. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch. You do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus, we pray that you'd speak to us. We find it fascinating in this fast-paced book that we've been looking at, energy, action, motivation, immediately. And then suddenly there's this long discourse to the disciples. We want to hear from you ourselves this morning. Some bits of this we've heard many times. Some of it, it seems vague and confusing. We pray that you'd speak into our hearts. We pray that we'll really hear you. Not just now, but... We'll hear you so that tomorrow we obey you. 
We ask this in your precious name. Amen. End times, I've, I've put down here. The disciples have been dazzled by the temple. This temple had been rebuilt by Herod the Great. And in fact, there's some talk that Herod the Great was still building it whilst Jesus was walking around. It was considered one of the wonders of the world. It's not like today where you could look up buildings on the internet and you can suddenly think, oh, the shard is quite impressive, but what about this tower in in Dubai? In those days, if you saw the temple, you would see nothing else like it. They reckoned that it was out of this white polished stone that from a distance it looked like a mountain with snow on the top. This was the best a person could produce. Not only was it considered grand, the temple, it was also considered secure. If you know anything about the history of Israel, you know that it was 12 tribes. And unfortunately, after Solomon, the kingdom divided and you had the northern and the southern tribes. The northern 10 tribes were invaded and carried off. But the southern two tribes were where the temple was. And they always thought we will be safe because the temple is where God dwells on earth. And so not only did you have this grand building, you had this anointed building. So when Jesus starts saying this building's going to go, the disciples knew there was only one thing. It was the end of the world. That's what they would be thinking about. Just as I was preparing this, I thought, we are also fascinated by the end of the world. It's amazing how many films you can watch, and they're all just about what's going to happen at the end of the world. Some of you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, would have read the books, the Left Behind series. Well, I predate even the Left Behind series myself. When, when I was a kid, we were so worried about Jesus coming back again. And if you don't know it, there's this whole thing that when he comes back, we will get caught up in the air. I had a friend that for a whole year would only have a bath in his swimming trunks. Because he didn't want to be caught up in the air naked if Jesus came back. I had somebody else who, this was his his reasoning, he brought a soft top convertible car. Because when Jesus came back and called into the air, he didn't want to have to go through a hard roof to get to Jesus. People live with that kind of mentality. The disciples think about the end times and what do they say? They say, Jesus, we want to know. But what does Jesus reply? I want to prepare you for action. The danger is that we ask Jesus for knowledge, like the disciples, and actually what he's trying to say is, I didn't want to be giving you all this knowledge. I want to prepare you for action. Even as I look at this this morning, the danger is that I can come and and, and want information, and he's trying to say, I want to impact you. Will we be impacted by this? There's loads in this passage. If I had to break it up very quickly for you, I would say that verse 1 and 2 talks about the future of the Jewish people. The temple was destroyed. It happened only 40 years later after Jesus. They reckon that one million Jews died in Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed. And they reckon most of them were prepared to kill themselves because they couldn't bear the thought of the temple being destroyed. We know that the Romans built an altar to Jupiter there. 
That's verse 1 and 2. Verse 3 and 8, I believe, is a picture of the future of the world. There are wars, there are natural disasters, there's famine, earthquakes, kingdom against kingdom. You can look at the news, you can see that's true. I think verse 9 to 13, if you've got a Bible, is the future of the church. And I think Jesus in this discourse is saying, actually, the world will hate you as it hated me. You will face opposition, but there will be glorious advance. I believe that then verse 14 to 23 determines the fate of Jerusalem is a picture of the world. It's a picture of devastation and tragedy that occurs and that the events like that will come to the world. I believe that verse 24 to 27 is how the world will end. It will end when God gives his word and Jesus returns in glory. And I think verse 28 to 37 is this. Get ready for the greatest surprise in history. Most trees in Palestine were evergreen. The fig tree wasn't. So when Jesus says, look at the fig tree, people always knew that you could tell the weather by then and the seasons. And it's almost like this picture, be ready, get ready. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because the disciples start by saying, Jesus, look at these buildings. And Jesus says, watch for the end times. And I think there's a picture there. I believe that as Christians, we go through trials, tribulations, and tough times. I don't want to belittle this because everybody can be going through a difficult time in their own way. As a church, I would say that we're facing a challenge. If you've been coming here for any, any while, you know that we've really appreciated using this building, Ealing Town Hall. It, people walk in and say, oh, God, quite a nice-looking church. It is the town hall. They are turning it into a hotel. If you're aware, politically, I don't want to get caught up in that. They're saying they can no longer afford to run it. This was meant to have happened last year. And then it was meant to happen in January, and then it's meant to happen in May, and now we've just got a contract. They've extended it through to October. For 18 months, we've been looking. God, where could you take us? What's going to happen? How could we find a central location? Some of you that have been with us for the last three or four months know that before Christmas, we found a potential venue. We made a verbal offer. They accepted it verbally. However, I've got to tell you now that two other organizations have come in and offered an additional half a million pounds above our offer. And as things stand, they're not really considering us. It's not how I thought it was going to go. I thought, surely, you know, if we need a building, we'd find a building. They could even give it to us. It feels like, oh, many a slip, doesn't it? I'll tell you what it says to me is, you've got to be prepared to fight. We have learned loads on this journey. But we've got to fight. Jesus didn't say, oh, it's all going to be easy. I've even put out on seats, which I wasn't supposed to. They said to me this morning, that wasn't on the plan. I said, I know. But I, I want to encourage the church to fight. I've put out vision fund slips. Because praise God for the amount that has been given. We've had 125000 already given on the vision fund. I think that's incredible. We've budgeted money ourselves, so we'll have... I can't remember, 265,000, I think, in the bank. Praise God for that. But you realize, actually, if we're going to keep fighting for this, we've got to raise more money. 21 people have signed up this year. But wouldn't it be great to have more to say, you know what? We're going to fight for this. It's not easy. 
What does Jesus say to the disciples? He says this, number one, stand firm. Stand firm. I found it amazing. Obviously, I've been praying my heart through this. Amazing grace. We were singing it this morning, weren't we? Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Is that what you expected of Christianity? I'll be honest, I thought I was going to be blessed, blessed, and blessed. Whereas suddenly you think, what he's saying here is stand firm. J.C. Ryle, he was a commentator that I was reading this week. He was the first Anglican Bishop of Liverpool. He says this, if the disciples thought Jesus would promise them immediate success and temporal prosperity in this world, they were soon undeceived. He was saying, actually, Jesus was saying to the disciples, I've not promised to give you easy street. I've promised you to come and get involved in this great story. And it was true. The four disciples that were getting to, to Jesus on this, who were they? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. We know that Peter and Andrew were both crucified. In fact, Peter asked to be crucified upside down, is the way tradition goes, because he thought, I'm not worthy to die in the same way as my Lord. James was beheaded, and John was exiled from his home. You see, what they realized is, God, I have signed up for a fight. This is not to be easy. Donald English, he was a Methodist minister. He says, true faith often leads one into hard times and difficult experiences. Paul says this when he's writing to the church in Ephesus, doesn't he? If you know anything about the the book of Ephesus, you know chapter 6, it's coming to an end. And he describes, put on the armor of God. And he's writing to the church, come on, put on the armor. So that when you fought... And the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand, stand firm. I think that's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Suddenly you've got all this action and excitement, this story, this book is boom, boom, boom. And Jesus says, actually, I've just got to teach you something. And one thing I want to teach you is, come on, stand firm. I mean, what, what, what's the, nowadays, what would we say? It's fight or flight. It's almost, am I going to stand here? Am I going to fight it? Many of you will have seen keep calm and carry on. And if we're brutally honest, it's keep calm and have a cup of tea now, isn't it? You know what I'm saying? We've turned that into everything. This was designed in 1939 when the government believed we were going to be invaded. And so the poster was designed and it was going to be put all around the country because we thought if we get invaded, keep calm and carry on. It wasn't until the year 2000 that they rediscovered the poster and have now turned it into this sort of modern icon that it's now become. Sometimes I think that is a picture of what's happened with the church. You see, this poster came out in wartime, keep calm and carry on. But we've now turned it into some fashion icon. Keep calm and have a cup of tea. Keep calm and, you know, be friends. I think what Jesus would have said is, come on, you've got to keep calm. You've got to carry on. You've got to fight. What else does he say? He says, fight. He says, watch. As I said, the disciples were looking at the buildings, going, look at the buildings. 
And he's going, watch, watch, watch. You can read it in verse 5. You can see it in verse 9. Be on your guard. You see it in verse 14. When you see, you see it in verse 21. If anyone says, look, you see it in verse 26. At that time, people will see. Verse 33, be on your guard. Verse 35, keep watch. Verse 37, watch. Phil Moore, he's written a book on the book of Mark. He leads a church called Everyday Church. He says this, Jesus prepares the disciples for persecution so they will be ready to face it when it comes. Unless they understand that following the one who wore a crown of thorns can never be a bed of roses. They will be surprised at persecution and will tone down their message thinking that they must be doing something wrong. Jesus was saying, keep watch. Be prepared. My kids still laugh about a time when we were on holiday and I was goofing around in the sea. You know what it's like? You can see your kids up the beach and and I'm sort of waving around like this in the sea, totally oblivious to this huge wave that's coming behind me. And as I'm waving at the kids, you know, I get absolutely pummeled. You go down. You think this is it. I'm never going to breathe again. You come out with your shorts absolutely full of gravel. Go, <laughs> They're going, ha, ha, ha. I'd just taken my eyes off the dangers of the sea because I was just mucking about on something else. And sometimes I think we've done that spiritually. We just think, oh, I'm just here having this great time and we're not keeping watch. Let me ask you a question. Where are you looking? What are you distracted by? Let's be frank. We live in a society where we are bombarded by the information highway. Whether it be your mobile phone, the internet, electronic mail, television, radio. Every day, you get through 105,000 words. That's the average, and we live in Ealing, so we're slightly above the average. 105,000 words. They reckon on a 12-hour day, that's 23 words per second. They reckon if you add in pictures and video games, you are getting through 34 gigabytes of information per day per person. In fact, they reckon that you spend an average of 456.1 minutes Per day, consuming media, that's seven and a half hours. We are bombarded with stuff all the time. You've probably consumed more information in one week than maybe your ancestor did in a hundred years. What are we watching, though? What are we watching? Are we just really well informed or are we wise? Do we just have loads of stuff that's coming through? Or what are we really watching in God? Many of you will know that we've been talking this year about the the Community Bible Reading Journal. I know that I've been doing it. And you're accountable to a group. And every day I have to text them to say, what have I read in the passage today? What did I learn about it? What did you learn about it? And and, suddenly it keeps you accountable because it makes me think, what have I read? What's it saying to me? How will I be different? I think, whoa. Suddenly makes me think, what am I I keeping my eyes trained upon? 
William Barclay says this. He was a Scottish author. Life is not a short, sharp sprint. It is a marathon race. Life is not a single battle. It is a long campaign. It's almost like, come on, how do we make sure that we're watching in the midst of difficulties? Now, if you're anything like me, difficulties come, what do we want to do? Run away. (laughs) You know, I am scared of dogs. Some of you have dogs. I'm really sorry about that. I'm very scared. Now, my policy on this is I don't have to outrun the dog. I just have to outrun whoever's with me. And I'm hoping the dog's going to eat them and not me. You know what I'm saying? You suddenly think a tough time comes. I think, whoa, let's run away. You can get eaten. I've just got this fear. And so in the midst of this, this passage, which actually can be quite a challenge, is Jesus telling us, run? Is that what he's saying? Run away from the world? Run away and hide in a cave? I think there's some glimmer of hope, even in this passage. I've called them promises. The first one is this. The gospel is to be preached in every nation. Don't you love this? Here's Jesus. Yeah, he's talking to these disciples. And he suddenly say, golly, it's dark out there. And you think, oh, no, it's black. It's heavy. It's, oh, there's earthquakes. There's famines. There's kingdom and king. And then you get this light beginning to come through. And the, one of them is this. The, the gospel goes to every nation. Why do I find that amazing? Because the four people that you're talking to are four fishermen from Galilee. Galilee was this body of water that was 13 miles long and 8 miles wide. And what do they call it? The Sea of Galilee. They're so small-minded, they think this sort of puddle is the sea. Luke, when he writes about the same amount of water, calls it a lake. What he does is he takes these small-minded men and says, I want you to think about the gospel to the nations. These that It's almost like, golly, that is the sea. No, no, that's the lake, a puddle. I want you to think about taking the gospel to the nations. How will you do it? It's the power of the Holy Spirit that's going to come upon you. And so what he's suddenly saying to these is, hey, times could be dark, but I want you to dream big because I can do things through you. And I think our challenge now is, do we just think, oh, God, could I possibly be a Christian to the end? Or do we think, actually, God's called us to take the gospel to the nations? Because to me, that's the future. We're on a mission. Nick Ripkin, I doubt if you've heard of him, I read the book that he's written. It's called The Insanity of God. He said this, we would do well to ask ourselves whether or not we are being obedient to Jesus He is asking, he is expecting, he is commanding us to share him wherever we go. He is commanding us to do that wherever we are today. Now, why is that quote so impressive? The quote is so impressive because the insanity of God was this guy that went all around the world and all he did was interview persecuted Christians. It's funny, I don't think he came to Ely. He went all around the world and literally he found people that there were family members, relatives, neighbors that they knew from the church that were being persecuted. And do you know what? None of them asked for the persecution to stop. This is one of his conclusions. They only asked that God would help them to be faithful and keep spreading the good news. I thought, wow, what a challenge to us. Now, sometimes we think, God, I, I just wouldn't quite know what to say. Do I, do I know what to say about Jesus tomorrow? Well, that's glimmer number two. 
Because Jesus says this in verse 11, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Now, the counsel was when you gave a defense to the Jews. It says that in the synagogue. But actually, the kings and governors meant you were before the Gentiles. So what Jesus was already saying is, I'm going to take you to the nations, and I'm going to take you to all peoples, and you might think, I don't quite know what to say. What it says to me is, the advance of the gospel is not my clever words, it's him. And I don't know what, this week, who you're going to meet, and that conversation is just going to suddenly open up. I was um, out with some friends on Tuesday night, and this guy was having quite a go at the church, to be totally honest. First time I'd met him, but we just chatting away. Oh, you know, all about the church. And then he goes to me, anyway, what do you do? <laughs> I said, well, a little embarrassing, really. I work for the church. <laughs> oh, I'm sure you're not like that. I said, oh, I'm sure I am. No, no, I didn't, you know. But you suddenly think, how do you kindly have the words that say to him, oh, this is what it's all about. We've got to be those that are listening to the Holy Spirit. The third glimmer of hope that I want to bring, I know my time is virtually out, is that they will eventually prevail. Why do I say that? It says, because the one who stands firm to the end, there is an end coming. Sometimes when we're in the midst of difficulties and trials, we don't think there is an end. We think this is it. It's torment and it's going to go on forever. And I cannot see if it'll ever stop. And if it doesn't, I I don't know about you, sometimes when I'm going through a difficult time, people say to you, are you managing to keep your head above water? And I think, forget keeping my head above water. I've developed gills. You know what I'm saying? I'm so used to sinking. I'm saying, God, help me to breathe when there's no air. But actually, I think if you look at this, there is an end coming. That's not saying it's easy, but there will be a day when all wrongs are righted. I read this week about an Anabaptist lady who lived in Antwerp. She lived in the 1500s. She used to read the Bible and ended up sharing it with others, even though she was told by the official church not to. For six months, she kept, I read the Bible, just couldn't help sharing. I read this in the Bible today. They were so cross with her that they sentenced her to death on October the 5th, 1573. And because they were so angry that she had shared the good news about Jesus, one condition was that they would screw her tongue to the roof of her mouth so that she could not talk about Jesus on the way to her death. Her teenage son, Adrian, and his three-year-old brother went to watch the mother die. She was burnt. He couldn't bear the horror and passed out whilst it was happening. However, afterwards, when the ashes had cooled, he went through the ashes of his mother's body until he found the screw and took it home, determined that the screw which had stopped his mother speaking would never stop him. I thought, what an inspiration. He was just thinking, you know what? I'm not going to let this win. I think, I wonder how I'd have reacted. I wonder what my response would have been. And we think, God, that was was hundreds of years ago. That is barbaric. I read about, this was on the 12th of March, so it's just over a week ago, 
Hussein, a 68-year-old 68 year old Muslim leader from Uganda, is now facing a fatwa, death sentence, after publicly acknowledging that he's become a Christian and he's lived the life of faith in secret for 10 years. I tell you, Mark 13 is still happening today. What keeps us going? Well, the reality is that Mark was written as one story. And the honest truth is, chapter 14 describes the Passion Week. Well, that was the week leading up to the death of Jesus Christ himself. You see, Jesus wasn't just a theorist. Jesus wasn't just talking about it. Jesus, we discover, is to be abandoned, deserted, falsely accused. Jesus is mocked, spat upon, and humiliated. Jesus is then flogged and crucified. And that's just a quick summary. If any of you have seen the film, The Passion of Mill Gibson, you realize just a horror. I remember seeing it in the cinema and literally missing a third of it just from the sobs of the audience. Jesus, he demonstrates this. Nick Ripkin, the author of The Insanity of God, says, avoiding suffering could be the very thing that prevents us from partnering deeply with the risen Jesus. So I, I must finish. I believe through this chapter that Jesus uh, pauses in the, in the Gospel of Mark, in the story, he says, stand firm, watch and go. Okay, so here's my challenge to us today. And I've really taken this thought from a guy called Tom Wright. He's an English New Testament scholar. He says this, many Christians today face persecution every bit as severe as that which the early church suffered. And those Christians who don't face persecution... Maybe that's us. Face the opposite temptation to stagnate, to become cynical, to suppose that nothing much is happening, that the kingdom of God is just a pious dream. I want to ask you the question as we close. Are you suffering or have you stagnated? If you're really honest, in your journey as a believer... Now, some of you are still on that journey. You may not even have become a Christian. But as a Christian, do you think, golly, I feel I've suffered? Or are you in danger of stagnating? Are you in danger? It's almost like saying, golly, this was such a radical, surprising, this is a, this is a surprising story. This is not what I was expecting. But that's the story that Mark's recording for us. He's inviting us into that story. Some of you may be suffering. And in which case, I'd want to pray that you know the grace of God. But some of us, if we're really honest, we're in danger of stagnating. Christian life has just become very easy, very comfortable. Let's be honest, that's the challenge of living in London. God, if I don't like Pete's sermons, I can just find a church that will serve me. I know he's asking me to give, but I'm not sure I feel comfortable about that right now. I know that he's often saying, oh, would you mind serving? But I'm not sure I want to get up on a Sunday. Have we stagnated? Or are we suffering? Let's just take a moment.
to respond. Let's just pause and listen. What do you think the Holy Spirit is saying to you right now? Rather than rush on, I'm just going to get, we're not going to embarrass you. But if you feel, you know what, Pete, actually, I feel this year I have suffered. In fact, I wasn't even sure if I was going to come today because I've just got a bit down. I've got a bit fed up. I'm struggling to keep my head up. You laugh about the gills, but that's how you feel at this moment. You're going through tough times and trials. We want to pray grace to you. Others, if you're really honest, you think, you know what, this year, Pete, I've probably stagnated. You can't tread water, I don't believe, as a Christian. You're either going forward or going backwards. You're either intentionally reading the word or generously giving or serving. Or you just think, you know what, I'm backing down. If you're either of those people, I'm going to encourage you to stand now and I'm going to pray for you. Stand now if you feel like this is tough time. Stand now if you feel I'm in danger of stagnating. This is Jesus speaking to us and we want to be those that respond. I'm not going to ask you to come out. I'm not going to ask you to explain which one you've stood for. I'm just going to pray for you because I believe this power of prayer. So if that's you, why don't you stand and I will pray. Jesus, we find it so easy to look around us, look at the buildings, look at the best that a man can do. Instead, we want to lift up our eyes to you. We want to be those that pray for those that are suffering at this time. Pray for those that have stood and said, you know what, golly, this just feels painful. I'm in a difficult place. Lord, we pray they lift up their eyes to you. We pray there be those that say, oh, even as we've been saying, where does my help come from? My help comes from God. Lord, some have stood and they think, you know, I didn't even want to stand. They feel I cannot even get my chin off my chest. Lord, I want to pray for them right now as a church that will be those that help lift up their heads. Lord, I pray for those as well that have stood because they're fearful of stagnating. Actually, there's been no resistance, you know. It's just coasting. Jesus, you told us to watch. You told us it's a fight. You told us we've got to be those on our front foot. Keep doing the drills, ready for when we're getting in the ring. Lord, I pray for those that have forgotten how to give, forgotten how to serve, just got caught up so much in their own career or business or life that they've stagnated in their walk with you. They don't hear you. They don't worship you like they used to. Our Father, I want to pray again your grace for those in Jesus' name. Amen.